0: Tonight, we return to the Beatitudes for blessed are those who hunger and thirst. We have worked with several of the Beatitudes over the past three or four months, however long we've been at this journey. We've moved through them, out of them, back into them. This is the one that this week was a, um, a standout to me. In fact, it, was, it, it kept coming back to me uh, even last night in dreams um, working it out a little bit. I don't know that the dreams helped. Sometimes I don't know that they hinder more than they help, but just kind of working out this topic and this thought. And so all day today has been a, a good landing spot for me. And there's a few things to wrestle out in this truly a few things to really have to wrestle out in this because we have some ideas that are almost stacked against each other. And I don't mean the, I don't mean contradictory. I just mean there are more than two ways, more than one way for sure to look at this this statement that blessed are those who hunger and thirst so let me start with a few thoughts after we read our one verse from matthew 5 6. very simple you probably have it memorized if you don't it's pretty easy to do so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and then this is the promise they shall be filled i'm going to work off of this tonight with that idea of blessed are those or blissful are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I would just wrote this down, wanted to say this to you guys tonight. And this is not just for this room. This is for everyone who considers themselves a part of this room. And that's a lot of people um, I'm on a real journey in my my own ministry of of, of what each season looks like because they move, we all do, but our lives change and our ministry, our, our, Personal ministry change. You have a personal ministry, really, whether you ever think about that or not, you do, because you have people in your life that you influence, that you speak to, that you teach, that you lead. Some of them you lead, and you don't even know you're leading them because they're watching you from afar. But that ministry is going to transition as you go. Um, and so mine is a little more out front because that's what I do, and that's what I am. And so when the seasons of ministry change for me, they, you can kind of see the colors of the leaves. <laughs> and things are happening in me and have over the last several years, and as I transition my thought process. Um one of the things I've had to sort of leave behind has been the idea of building something and, and trying to grow something. And I feel like I've successfully kind of walked away from that mentality. I know that'd be easy to get back into. Um, but one of the things I've tried to let go of is this mini messianic complex that we I said we and I'm going to just change that to I. That I have a tendency to fall into, that I think a lot of ministers do, um, and that is where we feel like we got to fix people. Like you got, like that's our job. Like if people come into your meeting, they need fixed. That's why they're there. I mean, why do they keep coming back if they didn't want something to get fixed? And and that's a very tempting because we feel like if they're watching us, they're listening to us. They must be looking for something, so we got to give them something. And then that tends towards you got to fix people. So one of the things that I want you to know is that I. I don't see you as a problem to be fixed. I see you um, as a mystery to be honored and to be revered. And I mean that you have your stuff. So do I. But I don't see that our relationship is to fix those things. I think for too long, I think it's how we've treated church. I think it's what we think of as church. Come into church where you can get fixed. Now, if you're broken and you're hurting and you're wounded, you probably need a hospital. So you probably need a place that'll at least plug up the wound and put some ointment on it and not beat you up some more. That'd be nice to go to a place where you didn't get stepped on. Um, And so in that, there's an element of fixing. But I think it ought to be the back burner idea for the gospel. I don't think the gospel is about, hey, let's fix these people. Because it turns us into the attempt to be little messiahs, which we can't be. Now, if that's me in ministry, okay, that's you in your ministry too. You can't fix the people around you. Maybe the quicker you stop trying to fix them, the easier your relationships will get with them. So you try to fix people, then you're always becoming something to them. And sometimes all you gotta be to people is an ear or a shoulder. You don't have to have advice. You don't have to have a lesson. You don't have to have a message. You just gotta be there. And and I think we talked about this in the last few weeks is sometimes you just gotta be there and be quiet so they can hear or so they can project and and we listen. um, my season of ministry, I'm, I'm getting away I'm doing, I'm wrestling this out. I'm not just being passive anymore. Oh Lord, just changing me, whatever you need to change. Cause I think that sometimes that's a lazy way that we approach the faith as we go. Yeah, I see some problems in there, but big deal. If God wants to remove them, he's got to remove them. And sometimes I think we've got to throw those things on the mat and wrestle with them a little bit. And, uh, and so in me, it's, I, I'm not trying to fix anything or fix you but I am hoping to facilitate, maybe hold your hand, maybe point you in the right direction towards the goodness of God, the love of the father and what this life can look like, what it can look like, not what I think yours should look like, or what it'll look like if you do it my way or we could get on the same page. Some of that stuff is is borrowed from the business world incorporated into the church and went, if we can all pull together, we can grow. And I don't ever look at Jesus looking at his disciples going, if we could all just get on the same page, we could really build the kingdom. I mean, he didn't, he didn't seem to think in those terms. And so I I hope that, I hope that that shows. And I hope that you receive that in the, in the spirit that I mean it. And that is, I'm not out to, to fix you and, and those of you watching and listening and who we hear from all the time from all over the world and, and are appreciative of that, but we're not here to fix your life and, Uh, But we do hope to show you Jesus. And if in that there's something that needs fixed, well, then we're praying that it gets fixed and that he, the healer, does the fixing. And we put that in his hands. Um, Couple things. The Beatitudes are almost all entirely collective, which is odd compared to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. This is one thing about the Beatitudes I don't know that we brought out early on in this journey you listen to the Beatitudes, blessed are they, those. It's not you. And yet, and then when you get into the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, it's you. If they ask you to carry the load a mile, carry it too. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other one also. It's all personal, but the Beatitudes are corporate, almost this blanket state. There's only one Beatitude that's not, and that's the ninth one, which is why some people don't count nine Beatitudes. They only count eight because... The eight are they, Beatitudes. That ninth one, which is blessed are you when they persecute you, um, is more personal to his disciples and maybe to all of us. But why, why are they less personal and more corporate? Because they're not describing you individually. They're describing the condition of the margins of the world, the people who are being forgotten about and who are being stepped on and who are being left out. That's what the Beatitudes are all about. And while you may not be in that category right now, odds are you will be in that category at some point. And so you belong in that group at one point or the other. Also, the Beatitudes are sometimes not specific commands for an entire subset of your life, but they could be a moment in your life. For instance, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Well, you're not always mourning. You might be, let's hope not. But for the most part, you're not always mourning. but when you mourn blessed are those who mourn for they are comforted. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. Maybe it should be looked at in the same way we do mourning. We're not always hungry and thirsty, but when we are, we are guaranteed that we shall be filled. Now, what have we done with stuff like this? Unfortunately, and this is the part where I said some things kind of push against each other, the New Testament. We're going to get into that. I'm going to show you some context of this statement, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but I'll give you a little hint with this. is, um, We've kind of taken stuff like this and we've used it as sort of a baseline way to approach worship and a baseline way to approach prayer. Every one of you in here ought to be hungering and thirsting after righteousness. If you're not hungry, what is it you've been eating out here in the world that's keeping you from being hungry in here in the church? That's the That was the stuff I've, I've preached that before. If you're not coming in here hungry, you've probably been eating the junk food of the world. And if you eat the junk snacks of the world, then when you come in here with fresh bread, you're not gonna want it because you have like a little kid, you filled up on chips and then you're turning down your veggies. You know, really heady stuff that was just meant to condemn people into doing, I don't know what, but getting excited about something. Um, And and so we kind of use things like this sometimes as this baseline teaching that goes, you should always be hungry, you should always be thirsty, there should always be this mode of desperation where you're crying out to God and begging for more. And that creates a worship culture and a church culture of begging and starving and wishing we could have revival. And then if you're like me, you grew up in cultures where you heard this all the time, something's coming, something's coming, something's coming. God's about to, Holy Spirit's going to, just wait. It's right around the corner, it's right around the bend. Sun's coming up. There's always next week, next month, next year, next decade, God's about to, about to, about to, because we had this as almost a tattooed mantra on the spiritual body of the church, which was, We're blessed if we're hungry and we're blessed if we're thirsty because we can be guaranteed that God will fill us. But we should no more live underneath the weight of this than we would. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It's a promise verse, not a threatening verse. When you're hungry and when you're thirsty, you can be sure you've come to the right place. So if you're hungry and you're thirsty when you come into the presence of the, br- the brothers and sisters in Christ and you come into the presence of the family of God, or even when you're just walking into your prayer closet or you open your word and you encounter Christ, you don't have to wonder if he's got something for you. You can be sure that the Holy Spirit has your back. Blissful are the people who, when they experience hunger and when they experience thirst, are assured that they're going to find something. It's not a maybe. It's not a faster way into it. Give your way into it. Go until you receive it. Hold the horns of the altar. It's show dad that you're hungry and show dad that you're thirsty and be ready to receive. And whatever way he gives that to you, receive that. And so that causes us to deal with the tension of the fact that there is some New Testament texts that tell us that we don't have to be hungry in him. And then we have texts that tell us to be hungry in him. So how do we deal with those? So when to get into some of those contexts, I want to start with Jesus's own mother. If you'll recall, uh, back around the holidays, when we were working, starting, I don't know what the date was, but I know it was in the holiday season. We did uh, the Magnificat, Mary's prayer, her song, and that fabulous transition moment in the middle of that song where she's, talk, she's given all this blessing and then she has that moment that we don't teach and that we don't preach where, uh, she's prophesying that Christ, the one to come is going to restore some wrongs. He's going to fix some problems. And so she speaks something. And I just want to take one slice of it from Luke one fifty three, where she says, you'll remember this from the middle of her song. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. I just want to show this. I know this, just doesn't really doesn't really round out our beatitude except it does sort of tell you where this is the environment from which Jesus was raised. This is his mom. And so out of this environment of, hey, God, our God is filling the hungry with the good, but the rich is empty. And that was such a, that was such an irony. That was a statement that completely didn't make sense to people because the rich For the rich to be sent away empty didn't make any sense because it was the hungry that always got sent away empty. And so if I could paint one picture to really be the backdrop of this beatitude, it's this. And this is really hard for us to wrap our minds around. The world into which Jesus came dealt 24 hours a day, seven days a week with poverty. I don't mean the people on the edge of town dealt with poverty, like those people over there starving. I mean the greatest, the greater percentage, the majority of the world did not really know where they were going to get their food. They didn't have supermarkets. They didn't have processed food. They didn't have refrigerators or freezers. They didn't have ice that they cracked and held in coolers in their house and kept their meat for. If you didn't catch it that day or kill it that day, there was the odds are you weren't going to eat it that day. And if you didn't raise it or weren't able to at least barter and trade or purchase in some way fresh from the market, you didn't have it at all. And so the greatest challenge every day of your life was how are we going to eat? What are we going to do? There's a moment in the Sermon on the Mount and I was tempted tonight to just do a combo lesson. There's a moment a little deeper where Jesus says think don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. He goes, "The birds of the field are dressed and you are more valuable than those birds. You are more valuable. Your father feeds the sparrows, won't he feed you? You're more valuable." And I've always thought that was like the weakest sermon you can preach in the American church because we don't worry about anything. Like when Jesus says, don't worry about what you're gonna wear, we go, what I'm gonna wear? I'm worried about, we're, we're worried about if our shoes match our shirt, not whether we have a pair of shoes or don't worry about what you're gonna eat. And we're not worried about what we're gonna eat. It's where are we gonna eat? And when are we going to eat? And how much of it do we get? So I've always thought that the Sermon on the Mount almost kind of falls flat right there in the middle where Jesus is like, hey, don't worry about this. stuff, you're more valuable, but from a, because from a place of luxury and a place of excess and success, who worries about that stuff? So that's really hard to get that out of our mind. So repaint the backdrop of a starving world and a world that is struggling to know what where they're going to make how they're going to make ends meet and where they're going to be tomorrow. Do you want why do all four gospels record the feeding of the 5000? Only one gospel records Lazarus being raised from the dead. To me that's a much bigger miracle. Not in their world. The biggest miracle is to take one kid's lunch and feed 5000 people and have doggy bags left over to take home. So this isn't this doesn't even make sense. This is irrational this is a miracle beyond proportion that we know where we get to eat tomorrow that that's beyond belief and so you got to take all of that into account when you start to filter down into this spiritual language you go bless are those who hunger and thirst they shall be filled but not just hungry and thirsty in their belly but hungry and thirsty in the realm of the spirit into which they can be filled because you're living in a society where no one is ever full of anything you're never full you don't ever eat till you're full that doesn't exist and so to have righteousness to the full, to have anything to the fill, is extremely excessive. It, doesn't even, it almost is irrational. and doesn't make sense. So, so let's take that natural idea and then spiritualize it in a Jewish context. And one of the mistakes that I make, I make this all the time, um, I'm aware that I make it and then I keep making it anyway, <laughs> which I guess is way better than making it and not realizing you're making it at least I can work on it, um, is that I, I'm prone to say things like, a Jew in the first century would have thought this. That's kind of like saying an American Christian feels this way. Good luck with that. Just depends on what side of the church street you're going to church on. I mean, they were as diverse in how they felt as an American Christian is in how they feel. Just go down the street. There's a Catholic church right across the street down here that I can promise you has a different set of opinions and feelings and beliefs than say the non-denominational church right outside the back of this subdivision has both serving the same Jesus not having the same ideas and so um I don't know how all Jews would have felt but what we do know is that they had the same text okay and so what we can do is at least take a look at their text and see what they might have done with that I'm working on that being less universal idea on how everyone must have felt about everything so let's start with isaiah 55 1 it's the one old testament text we'll use until the very end tonight Ho, everyone who thirsts, the word ho most certainly has a different connotation in our vernacular than it had in Hebrew, regardless of whether you're a 5th century B.C. or a 1st century A.D., but especially if you're a 21st century A.D., it does not have the same meaning. The Hebrew word there is, is, is actually pronounced hoi, and it is a word that kind of means, the exclamation point is pretty solid. They don't have those in Hebrew and Greek, by the way. But we added those in the English. The exclamation point itself isn't bad. Um, it probably should have been better translated closer to ha. The problem is, is that ha denotes humor, like something's supposed to be funny. And the issue is that the word hoy in the Hebrew actually has a touch of sympathy in it, not a touch of humor. So they didn't really know what word to use. You'll, you'll get into a lot of translations that have just given up. The word's completely gone from the translation. Although the Hebrew, yeah, there it is. And so what do we do with it? So all I can really say to you is it certainly doesn't mean what it might mean in our vernacular, but it, but it also has a hint. It's a, it's a, it's almost jocular with just a hint of sadness in it. That's the best I can do. Keep that in mind. When you read the verse, everyone who thirsts come to the waters. You who have no money come by and eat. Yes. The yes is important there. Why do you throw in another yes? Because the third line doesn't make sense in conjunction with the fourth line. The third line is you who have no money, come buy and eat. How do you come buy and eat if you have no money? So the fifth line starts with, yes, you read that right. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Well, this has to be the greatest news in the entire Old Testament, it doesn't get heralded that way by us because, again, we don't think a whole lot about eating and drinking and, and, uh, and survival. But in a world where you were thinking about that, and I think that was fairly universal regardless of your religious proclivities, it was fairly universal that you were worried about food and you were worried about drink. To be able to come by it without money, to be able to get whatever you need, wine and milk, these are luxury items by the way. This isn't just water and stale bread that I might survive on. I mean, wine's for the, the top of the heap and yet you get to have wine and you get to have milk and you get to have it without money and you get to have it without price. And so the context prophetically is there's coming a day hilariously with a hint of sadness because it's sad that we gotta get so excited about this Israel, but there's coming a day when you're going to have whatever you need without money and without price. And you can imagine why they probably thought that meant natural bread and natural wine and and natural water. And that's a promise for another time. But what we find is that what Jesus is promising us is is a different kind of bread, something that we can have. Now, I want you to focus on, you're invited, you don't have any money but you're told to come buy and eat. Oh, yep, yep, we said that right. You get to buy it, but you get to buy it without money, and you get to buy it without price, and without price doesn't necessarily mean there's no price tag. It just means that there's no price I can put on it. You get to have it regardless of what you have. Don't think in these terms, salvation costs me nothing. Wrong. Salvation has no price tag, because salvation costs whatever the payer has. So salvation costs you not nothing. What's the opposite of nothing? Everything. So think in these terms. Salvation doesn't cost you nothing. Salvation costs you everything. To come to Christ is to give everything you are, not nothing. We haven't done the gospel favors. We think we're doing it favors by going, hey, Jesus is free. You can come and have Jesus. And that's not doing any favors because it's not me putting anything on the table. And yet salvation is the demand that I come and buy without money, without price. But it doesn't mean I don't put something down. You just don't pull your wallet out and you don't cut your hand off. It's not a matter of barter and trade, but there's an offer that I make. Let me give you an example. Jesus said this in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, two different stories crammed into three verses, all about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he hid it. The man found a treasure. He put it in the field. Now he needs the field. Okay, I'm going to try to break this down just a second without staying on it too long. But just watch this. And for the joy over that treasure, he goes and sells everything that he has and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. And there's a lot of depth here that deserves its own message. Don't have time for that. I will say this. I don't determine the field. The kingdom of heaven doesn't need my determination on where it belongs. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a great treasure. It's been hid in the field and you sell everything you have to buy the whole field so that you get the treasure. And in some respects, God is the one who sells everything that he has to buy the whole world so that he can get you, the great treasure. You, the great mystery, out of the midst of the world. He wants to own the whole thing so he can have you. He's also digging for pearls and he finds you. He's swimming for pearls and he finds you and he sells everything he has in heaven. And he dies on Calvary and he purchases you that pearl of great price but at the same time the allegory works the other way and we don't always know which way jesus is going with it. that's the beauty of the bible one day it means one thing to you and another day it means another thing there was a day when this meant to me man i mean something god bought me like a pearl of great price i needed to hear that because i had been devalued i had only been made the sum of my abilities in ministry I hadn't been made a valuable son of God. And I needed to be the pearl of great price. I needed to know that he sold himself to buy Paul White. And then there's been moments in my life where I needed to sell. (laughs) I found something valuable worth dying for and worth laying my life on the line for. And maybe it was my son and my daughter. And I was able to sell what I could have been to be what I needed to be. And that if I didn't sell what I could have been to be what I needed to be, I couldn't be everything that he needed and that she needed. And they became my pearl of great price and they became my field. You see how the the text moves with us. This is why we call the Bible a living text. Whatever is my kingdom is so valuable. Here's the point. Whatever is my kingdom is so valuable. I sell everything that I have to go get it. Well, what would it look like if I sold everything that I had? Jesus said this one, and this one doesn't, this one doesn't land easy, All right. Luke fourteen thirty three. likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. I, we, we finished with this text in a recent sermon we posted called the crazy initiative of grace. We aired that a couple of Sundays ago. Um, I would encourage anybody watching who wants to hear that message and where we really flesh this idea out, the crazy initiative of grace, because God just kept pushing this grace thing. And it's crazy. It doesn't make any sense that he would, this, this kind of blessing to people is so unworthy. Well, I land on this verse because, look at this. Whoever of you doesn't forsake everything that he has can't be my disciple. And you go, what? What's that mean? Sounds like it means i got to give up everything if I'm going to follow Jesus. Well, you're not far off. It's what Jesus said, but what does that look like? Remember, come buy without price and without money. How do you buy without price and without money? Forsake everything you have. That's the price. And so I think really what we ought to do when we introduce people to the gospel is when you come to Jesus, what it costs you is is you. What are you? That's what it costs. What do you got? Okay, that's what it costs. Yeah, but I don't have this. Oh, no, 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 no. This isn't a marketplace where you barter. This isn't a marketplace where you gotta bring the price down. The price is exactly what you have. How much is in your wallet? (laughs) It's not about wallets either, but that's just an illustration. It's like, what does this cost? What do you got? That's what it costs. Oh, lo and behold, it costs exactly what you are. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. And that then becomes the all-consuming, all-encompassing discipleship of following Christ. Now I want you to take that Jewish idea from Isaiah 55, come, by without price, without money. So no matter how hungry you are, no matter how thirsty you are, you get to have of him without anything. And I want you to remember that you can't really properly, I've said this a hundred times, you can't ever really properly understand the book of Revelation until you get some working capital inside your memory banks of the Old Testament. And part of the reason why we botched Revelation is because we're reading it as if it's an independent book without the history of Judaism and without the history of the Hebrew people and without their stories. Yeah, know, I mean, what in the world's going on without their stories? Um, I'm also becoming more saddened that we're not a real good story culture. We only watch stories to be entertained. We don't watch stories to learn. We're one of the first cultures in the history of the world that does that. We're probably the best storytelling culture that's ever lived and the worst story interpretation culture that's ever lived, because we think stories are fake. It's kind of why we let ourselves get lost in them. They don't mean anything. And every culture in front of us told stories to tell something. The story meant something. It's why we're not real good, and this is, this, I'll throw us all under the bus. I can be offended with, along with the rest of them all of us we're not very good students of the old testament because we keep reading it demanding all the stories be true and then because we're fighting so hard to make them true we don't make them relevant and there's a lot more to learn if they were real than if they were true now i don't care if they're true or not i honestly don't i don't read the old testament stories and go well i wonder one was that i wonder how tall goliath really was I wonder if his bones could be found. Wouldn't that be something? I don't care. I just I know that if you approach the giants of your life armed with the covenant, you can say to the uncircumcised Philistine, I come to you in the name of the Lord. Now that's real. Because what do you care if a kid killed a giant on a battlefield a few thousand years ago? What's that matter? But if you go armed with something bigger than yourself, you can take down something bigger than yourself. Well, there. hey, now we got something. And when you find out he's Goliath and Jesus would die on Golgotha, place of the skull, and uh, Goliath's head gets cut off and buried somewhere, well then, by God, maybe Jesus is buried on top of Goliath's skull, and so now, therefore, you get to conquer all the other giants. Well, now you got yourself more than a story. you got yourself a reality. Now you can go to work with it. And, man, you need that when you get to Revelation. It's also why we're bad Revelation students because we're not good storytellers and we, we're not allowing story to say what it wants to say. Okay, so when you get to the end of this whole thing, you got New Jerusalem, the city comes down from God out of heaven. Look at Revelation twenty two seventeen. 17. Now you tell me what this sounds like. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. If you're... Jewish with the Isaiah scroll running through your head. Do you pick up on anything here? Does it sound at all like some of the prophetic stories that you heard grandpa tell you from the old, the old scriptures? Well, it, it's almost word for word. It's recast. It's remixed a little bit. But at the end of this whole thing, the Holy Spirit and his church, that's the bride, by the way, Both the Holy Spirit and his church are inviting everyone to come in. And if you got ears to hear, you can come on in. And if you're thirsty, you can come on in. Oh, and don't worry, here's how much it costs. You get to take of it freely. However, it doesn't cost zero because in Revelation 22, in order to get it, you gotta go through the gates and you gotta live in God's city and he invites you in. In other words, he even makes this big deal in Revelation 22 of showing you all the bad people outside the gates and then showing you the goodness inside the gates and then he goes, hey, come on in you can have everything you want what do you got to do you gotta come in if you come in you can have everything you want if you come in then you can't be identified as someone who didn't come in in other words what's it going to cost you to come in it's going to cost you the identity of those that don't come in it's going to cost you the identity of everyone outside is a dog a sorcerer sexually immoral a murderer an idolater. whoever loves and practices a lie that's who's outside but hey come on in if you're thirsty come on in the minute you come in you're not outside anymore and when you're not outside anymore then guess what you're not anymore Dog sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, adulterers, whoever loves and practices a lie. You don't have that anymore because you come in. So what's it cost? That identity. What do you gain? Whatever he has. Whatever you need. And how much of it do you get? Freely. It's all yours. Take it in. Here's a new test. Here's all of that recast in one beautiful, succinct, glorious little Pauline verse, Romans 5 17. If by one man's offense, death reigned through the one much more. Those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Look at the two men juxtaposed one man's offense, death killed you. Another man's gift. You get to receive abundance of life in favor. If by Adam you fell, by Jesus you are given life. But notice how you get it. How do you receive righteousness? You just receive it. Receive the abundance of grace. Receive the gift of God's righteousness. Now, I intentionally didn't give you any real good definition of righteousness yet. So I want to kind of lead you up to that with a final thought and then a definition we find our fulfillment in jesus we bring everything we've got everything that we are and whatever you bring as long as it's whatever you are that's enough simple enough right costs nothing but costs everything as long as you bring whatever you are that's perfect you want to know where this doesn't work when you don't bring everything you are this is when you get yourself into trouble this is where, this is whenever it starts to flip over into religion, like real performance religion, because you're not honest with what you are and you hide it and then you got to defend it or run from it or squash it. And then you are throwing all those balls in the air. You're juggling. You're trying to figure out how to keep the mask on and the demons down while climbing the spiritual ladder. doesn't work, right? That's why it's hard to receive the gift of righteousness because you keep trying to pay God. You're trying to always throw to God all this stuff. So it doesn't work when you don't pay the full price. The full price is here is who I am. I'm not going to lie about it. This is me. This is all I got. And then once you've done that, you receive all that he has. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ if he's made my sin, I get made his righteousness. If I don't make him my sin, how can he be made my righteousness? So if I don't give myself fully over to that, how can I receive fully of who he is? This is why there's really no room for dishonesty in this walk because in pure honesty in perfect honesty, even where it hurts, We receive the fullness of the healing that we need and whatever that healing, whatever that needs to look like. So we partake of everything that we need. We find that nothing else ever satisfies, man, is this true? Nothing else ever satisfies us in the same manner. We just simply receive the gift of righteousness. And so I think that's kind of wrapped up in the prodigal son story. Um, The farther you get from dad's table, and the longer you're away from dad's table, the more you want to eat the pig's food. Like there's nobody in their right mind wants to eat pig food. But if you've been away from dad's table long enough, well, he goes, I'd rather eat that than starve to death. That's the trick. That's what happens. And so you get to feed on father every day. You don't have to wait till there's a good service. You know, this, this weirdness of you know, if we just gotta wait for the Holy Ghost to move so we can eat. What, is, what are you talking about? You every time you sit with him, whatever that looks like, you get to eat his goodness. You get to partake of his, his favor, his grace. The longer you separate from that, the more you start to sort of get unsatisfied by the other things that you consume in your life. Let's land on a definition or two, and I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna show you why I wanna do that. John 6.35, I want to show you this because this will help us to transition. Here's one of those verses that seem to be opposite of everything I just said to you. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So is Jesus saying that if you're hungry and if you're thirsty, something's wrong with you. It's not, don't swing the pendulum hard the other way. Jesus is telling us this. If a man would find his sustenance in me he'd stop being hungry for anything but me. If a man would find his, his water in me, he'd stop looking for water in anything but me. And man, I have found this to be 100% true. I, I don't know of a truer statement that, the, that as you start to find your fulfillment in Christ and who he is and what, what the Father thinks of you, you stop looking for it in what everybody else thinks of you. One of the I'm, I told you this earlier. I didn't even know why I was telling you this, but I do now. I can't fix you. I don't think you need fixed. But I also think that if you want fixed in any area, that's a good place to start. And that the step you take is learn to start to take your diet on Christ and what He thinks of you rather than what they think of you. Because a lot of our issues are sourced in how we've taken our identity from how much we make, how much we weigh, who we know, what kind of job we have, what kind of car we drive, what kind of education we got, the stuff we don't have, the people we don't know, the things we don't get to do. And you go, oh, I'm beyond that, I'm too old, that's kiddie stuff. And yet we do it, I don't care how old we get, we still do it, we still start to develop all these little fortresses around our identities. And if you don't think so, lose your job. Watch that fortress crumble of going, oh, oh, ah, ooh, I didn't realize how much I had built around that identity that I had, or that paycheck that I had, or that thing that I was doing. Or and, and that's just one example. That's, that's ageless, by the way. You don't have to be 20 for that to hurt. You don't have to be 60 for that to hurt. It hurts anytime we start to build identity around whatever it is, and that's not easy. I'm not, it's not, I'm not being preachy about it, I'm saying that if we, want to, if, if we want to start the therapy, we want to start the healing of whatever we think is wrong, you can do worse than starting by feasting on Jesus and what he thinks of you. So start by feasting on his goodness and what he says of you. I don't, I don't, sound, I don't want to sound cold, but I think that in some ways we're not always serious when we say, I got stuff I need fixed, and we don't ever talk to him. Maybe we're just ignorant. Maybe we don't know what we're doing. But then you can talk to people like, I don't know, I don't read my Bible. I don't have a prayer life. Oh, so you're really serious about this stuff that's going on that you're really struggling with. And you know, you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you know he's an answer, the answer that you need and can provide answers in these other spots in life. And that doesn't mean you don't go to therapy or see a psychiatrist or take your meds. We've gotten crazy with with some of this stuff to say that, oh, none of this other stuff if you're gonna follow after Jesus, no. But take your identity at the table of his goodness. Let that be primary. All right, here's your definition. We land here. Righteousness in the Greek is the Greek word dikaiosune. And it is the character or the quality of being right or just. And it also has connotations of the very nature of who God is and the very character of what God is. And so when you see righteousness, either Old Testament or New Testament, primarily it has to do with the very nature or the very character of God. But this is something I want you to wrestle with. The word dikaiosune is translated justice in multiple Greek writings outside of the New Testament. And yet, the New Testament translators chose against this. They, they chose against it so starkly that I want you to, I want to challenge you and everyone watching to go get your concordance and look up the word righteousness, the kaiosune, then type in the word justice, which by the way, in the Greek is the kaiosune and see how many times it pops up in the new Testament. And the word justice pops up a grand total of zero times in the new Testament. That was a translator's choice, by the way, because they're the same word in the Greek. Remember, every translation is an interpretation. I wish I could shout this from the housetops when people start fighting over translations, that translation, that is not good. Every translation is an interpretation. It wasn't written in English. We're doing the best we can. We make choices on where we land with words the choice the New Testament writers made was to always translate Dikaiosune as righteousness. And they could have translated it as justice, but they didn't. And I want to ask you this. How has righteousness shaped us as a people versus how the word justice might have shaped us if they had used it, oh, say, once? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the justice of God revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I mean, the root word's already there. I didn't quote it to you the way it's in English, by the way. The way it's in English is "Therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith for, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justice for they shall be filled. I'm not saying to you that you should go into your Bible and write the word justice in every place, but it wouldn't be a bad idea to jot it in the margins here and there and just remind yourself as you read that the words mean the same thing and that if they mean the same thing, what would have happened to our Christianity had we been less personal righteousness minded and more public justice minded? Maybe we would be the church we were destined to be. Maybe, maybe these are good questions. Maybe we would be working really hard to let people know they're personally righteous. Maybe we would have swung that pendulum so hard people would be like, man, I don't know, how do you get righteous? And go, oh, it'd been nice if they had translated it righteousness one time, wouldn't it? Instead of all this justice, justice, justice. True. I do know that we have spent centuries really hammering personal righteousness. And we swung that pendulum so hard we hammered a personal righteousness that we thought you could achieve. Now we've swung it back to going righteousness is achieved only through Christ. Believe on Jesus. I'd like to see us work a little harder. I put justice in there once in a while and see what that looks like. Just to see. Because I don't think we would be far off from the heart of God. And here's my closing example from Psalm 89. 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Look at that. Old Testament words actually have a different... Differentiation in the Hebrew for these. Mercy and truth go before your face. Mercy and grace, by the way, in the Old Testament are interchangeable words. You could have wrote this. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Grace and truth go before your face. For the law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus, who's in this verse. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Jesus goes before your face. Blessed are the people who know that joyful sound. You're darn right, blessed are the people that know that joyful sound. Because when justice comes to your house, that's a joyful sound. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those people who know that joyful sound. They walk in the light of God's face. It's what God looks like. Is He fills up the people who look for His justice. In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. Oh, yes, I want, to see a, I want to see a tidal wave of people knowing they are the righteousness of God in Christ. But I'd like at least a little mini baby pool wave of the church realizing that justice is part of her call. At least a baby pool wave so we could at least get water up to our knees. And maybe then we would realize that you can't really present a gospel that is only the righteousness of God. That is not also the justice of God. And if you're having to wrestle with that, well, then congratulations wrestle away and see where you land. Let's pray. Father, I thank you tonight for what has been a spectacular time of study and dwelling and wrestling and meditating on this scripture. I have enjoyed every minute of it. Although I haven't always been happy with my landing spots. I know that father, you are speaking into my heart of justice from your vantage point. And as I wrestle with that, I pray for clarity, and I pray it for everyone who will join me in that wrestle and finding out what it means to be filled when we hunger and thirst after that. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.